there was always this sense if they let one of us through any of these doors, that there would suddenly be an invasion of women. There would be a herd of women. Hey everyone, it's me, Megan. Welcome to the first Happiness Talks episode of 2021. We are truly starting out this year with a bang with the guests that I have for us today. Without giving too much away, my guest has lived quite the life and has had experiences that many of us today couldn't imagine. Her federal case was instrumental in changing the world of female sports reporting, and I am so lucky and honored to have her take the time to speak with me and us about her story. With that being said, this episode is going to be longer than normal just because her story is so incredibly important and it's one that needs to be heard from start to finish. So if you want to hear the incredible story about what it was like for our guest to be a female sports reporter during the late 70s, what she experienced and what the amazing, seriously amazing outcome was from those experiences, please keep listening. So before we get started with today's episode, I just want to give a quick little story time. So once upon a time, there was a young woman who was a sports journalist working for Sports Illustrated at the time, who was reporting on the 1977 World Series. And for those of you who are involved in the sports world or just keep up with it, you know that the place to be post-game is the locker room. Um, It's the place where reporters really get um, more of an intimate um, connection with the players, really good information for their stories, less generalized, and it's just really important for reporters to be inside of that inside of that locker room. So at the time, you would think that everybody would be allowed inside of those locker rooms. Well, um, Essentially, this young woman was told by a higher up individual that she was banned from the locker room because she was a woman and they went to court about it and she won it. And ever since she has been the ultimate trailblazer for young female reporters and um, her name is Melissa Ludke. And I'm so excited to say that I have her with us on the podcast today. And um, without further ado, I'm just going to have her introduce herself and get started. So good morning, Melissa. Well, good morning. That was an incredible introduction. Takes me way back. Because you didn't mention this was way back in the 1970s. Late 1970s, let me add. Uh, that this happened and yeah I was 26 at the time and I'm now almost 70 so it really begins to give you a sense of how much time has passed and you know I hope we'll get into a little bit about the past but talk also about you know kind of the lessons learned from that experience at a young age and maybe how they've impacted my own life moving forward but um, but that was a very generous introduction. Um, I will add that at the time, just to kind of give it a, yeah, a please. circle around it, that I was the only woman reporting full-time on Major League Baseball at that time. I'm pleased, pleased and delighted to say that perhaps in part due to my federal lawsuit and our victory in that, uh, that we look ahead 40 years, almost, you know, 40, 40 years, yeah, 40 years, and uh, we have a lot of women covering baseball now. So that's, that makes me very happy. That is a real kind of 
thumbs up, uh, you know, that it's not to say that everything's rosy and maybe we'll get into that, but, um, but it really is a, a moment of happiness to say that this has had an impact on women's lives through these generations and that we've seen real change happen and, and we know that change is possible. Yeah. And I mean, it definitely has something to do with you. So I don't want you to sell yourself short there, or at least I think it does. Um, but for people who might not know the story, do you mind just quickly taking us through, um, through, through it and what it was like working at the time and kind of just what happened? Okay. I'm going to kind of slide around inside the story because it has the, understand the context of that time. And it was a different time. We have to kind of go back and, and see what the environment was that I was working in. So let's begin by just a tiny bit of history before I even got to baseball, just so we kind of set the stage. Because uh, when you say that um, I was banned by a person who was pretty high up, I was banned by the commissioner of baseball, <laughs> who really ruled that sport like a king would rule a kingdom. Um, he worked in what he thought was the best interest of baseball, and that could be just his own personal judgment, which in my view, uh, this was to a large extent. But that is not to say that the rest of baseball wasn't right where he was in terms of its very conservative men only uh, sense of, uh, of its territory. So before I even asked and requested and in fact had the right to go into the locker room before he took it away from me uh, based on the press pass that I had that day, we go back in time, there were occasions when women had shown up to cover baseball games in the past, going back into the, the 19, late 1950s. And um, in the book I'm writing right now, I talk a lot about some of those, those women who, who did that. But they were individuals, they were there for a very short time, they weren't there over season after season, um, really covering the sport in whole. But what stands out? to me as I've looked at this history, which I didn't know as a, six, as a 26 year old, but is relevant to this, is that baseball, various teams over the time um, had, and, and various institutions within baseball had over that time done everything they could to exclude women from every part of what it would take to be a reporter covering the game. And what does that mean? Women historically before me and probably right up into the 70s were still being excluded from things as simple as eating with the rest of the uh, sports writers because traditionally the teams would prepare pregame meals and after you did your reporting on the field during batting practice and the rest, the tradition was that they kind of fed the press corps because it was usually before an evening game. So that was considered something that, that they did. and. Right up until the early 70s, um, I know two women in particular who have told the stories about how they were not allowed to eat with the male reporters. So we're talking about an exclusion. We're not talking about something that deals with the potential of a player being naked. This is not about nudity. None of those sports writers were sitting at their tables naked. So what you begin to understand if you look at the history is this is about exclusion. It wasn't about what baseball said it was about, which is the fear of a woman kind of going in and leering at a naked ball player. I'll just give you a brief rundown. Before that, they had been excluded from sitting in the press box with the male reporters. 
They had been excluded from being able to come onto the field for batting practice when a lot of the reporters talked to players for that, which meant that they would be excluded from sitting in the dugout. And that was important because that's where the manager would come out and that's where the manager would be interviewed and he'd pace the lineup for the, for the day. Otherwise, you didn't see the lineup. This is before we had all this social media where people could take a photograph and send it to you. So a lot of information that was very valuable and conversations that would take place, women were excluded from. So, um, and they were also, my colleague Stephanie Salter, who had been before me as a baseball reporter at Sports Illustrated, had been thrown out, literally approached by three people. She refused to leave at the uh, suggestion of the first two and the security guard literally came and took her from a table where she had a ticket to sit with nine other people from Sports Illustrated at the baseball writers annual dinner. She was forcibly removed from that dinner and that was just in 1973. So we're not talking ancient history here, but this gives you an idea of sort of the exclusionary nature of baseball to the, what the baseball men called the invasion of women. There was always this sense if they let one of us through any of these doors, that there would suddenly be an invasion of women. There would be a herd of women. And when Diane Shaw, who was one of the ones who was told she couldn't eat her our meal with the sports writers and the Boston Red Sox put a little picnic table out for her that had a sign on it saying ladies pavilion and they would bring the food out to her which she refused to eat there. Um, when she actually was uh, then introduced at one point to the very curmudgeonly very crusty PR person um, Bill Crowley who uh, ran that uh, media office and by the way had refused her privilege to go in onto the field um, or sit in the press box prior to her getting the male attorney and her male editor to call on her behalf and make sure that she had at least those credentials. She didn't imagine that she wasn't going to be able to eat. Right. Them. So, you know, this, this comes to it, but, um, you know, Diane basically, um, you know, just refused to eat her meal that way. She said, this is preposterous. This is ridiculous. But again, she wasn't full-time as a baseball reporter, so she didn't have to kind of deal with this, with this all the time. Um, and I'm going to give you one more example. Even in 1976, which is the season before my banning from the locker room happened, I was uh, sent out on an assignment with Roger Kahn, who'd written The Boys of Summer, for, to be his reporter on sort of a two-week road trip. And we started in Comiskey Park in um, the White Sox, where the White Sox play in Chicago. And that was owned by Bill Veck, who was sort of an old-timer. And Roger Kahn was going to do a story about the old-timers. So we got to the into the press box. It was the first time I'd been in the, press, in the White Sox press box. And so um, Roger sat down with Bill Veck in the first you know row of seats. And I just kind of found a seat maybe a couple of tiers up from him. And during the time that I was in the press box then, and I didn't realize this till he wrote about it in his 2003 book called October Men, um, but he wrote about how several sports writers approached him and whispered to him that he had no business bringing his girlfriend into the press box. 
This is in 1976, a year before we're getting into the question of locker rooms. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, you know, he writes about it in his book as though they were approaching him as though he was bringing a harlot into a temple. I mean, it was just, and he ignored them and just said, you know, she's my reporter, she's with Sports Illustrated, etc. But that wasn't the end of that evening's events, because uh, we were going to meet Bill Vec, the owner of the team, in something called the Bard's Room, which was the room set aside in that old park. It was a beautiful old room with a fireplace and pillars, and they had their own bartender. And this is where the um, reporters would go after they'd found their stories to kind of talk the game. And, you know, this is very much a men's club. You know, this is what they wanted to do. Rather than going home, they would go and have a few drinks with each other and kind of share stories and the rest. So Bill Deck had suggested that we meet him in the... Um, in the Bard's room. And so we got there and we sat down and um, Roger probably ordered his, you know, maybe a scotch or something and ordered me a seltzer because my job that night was going to be to take notes, you know, of what these guys talked about. So that was fine. That was my job. I was on the clock. And um, before he could even get the drinks over to us and sit down, he had gone up to the bartender and he writes about this scene where the bartender said to him very softly that um, he's sorry, but his secretary can't be in this in the room with him. No women are allowed and he's going to have to leave unless he sends me away. And um, so he doesn't again tell me all of this, but it's pretty clear that something's happened because he comes to me and he says, uh, come on out, we're going to drink uh, Mr. Beck's uh, drinks in the hallway. And we just ended the night that night. And um, the next morning, Roger called Bill Beck and said, you got to make a change here. I mean, this is unacceptable. And Bill Beck, who wasn't wild about having women around either, he was a very much a traditionalist, said to Roger, no, 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 I don't control the bars room, the writers do. And Roger just lays into him and says, wait a minute, you own this stadium. You own this park. You own this team. Yeah. You can do this and you're going to do it. And we're going to meet tomorrow night and Melissa's going to be with us. And so after the next night's game, I was indeed in the Bard's room sitting down and we probably stayed till two or three in the morning with me drinking seltzers and these, you know, guys turning into sort of the boys um, talking about uh, baseball and, you know, and it was turned out to be a fine evening. But so those two things happened to me in, 19, in the end of 1976. So the idea that by 77, we're actually talking about locker room access. Um, and in the person of me doing it, having been a full-time reporter at that point for two full seasons, that it took that long. So that's kind of where I'll set it. And then if you want me to go on, I just kind of want to take a pause here to see if you have a more specific question. Because with that history in mind, I'm now able to kind of share with you kind of where and what happened, you know, at the World Series. But yeah. to understand what that was means that you've got to kind of understand what the scene was as it's going on. Yeah, no, and I thank you for setting that scene just because I didn't know either of those stories um, before. And the fact that you were either the girlfriend or the secretary, it's just so absurd to me. And... Um, the only thing that I thought before we get into the, the more specifics of the case is, did you think, did you appreciate having people like Roger kind of like 
protect you and shield you from what people were actually saying even though you had an idea or would you have rather him like told you straight up what was going on didn't matter one way or the other yeah i mean i was just glad to kind of eventually read the fuller story when i came across it in his 2003 book so that was now you know 25 years later right you know that he wrote these scenes so i was just glad to have it down as a documented record and you know, I, I understood kind of, the, I understood that this was going on. And by the way, before we say that this is sort of comical or absurd in this day and age, let us not forget that it's still the case that if you are the woman and you're the only woman and you are in sort of a sea of men and you're sitting in a conference room, that it isn't beyond um, the realm, even to this point, that the woman has feels and often is expected by the people in that room to be the one necessarily who gets the coffee yeah. or gets the coffee machine working and all of that. These roles, it's not like we have left them right. behind totally. Um, so these kinds of impressions and these kinds of statements, I, I would say still probably exist because within that environment where where you are the only one there are a lot of stereotypical assumptions that are still made out of that yeah you're totally right so we haven't necessarily evolved past that i would say crazy um so let's let's get into let's get into that case well so we can't get into the case until we understand what precipitated it and what precipitated it was that the 1970s, by 1977, having been the sort of junior reporter of two reporters assigned to the baseball beat, and back then, baseball was America's pastime, and Sports Illustrated was the biggest sports magazine in the world. So to have two reporters on that particular beat was customary, because it was considered one of the absolute major sports that we had to cover. And to have gotten to that position of becoming that beat writer I mean, that beat reporter after Stephanie had left was just one of the highlights of my career. I loved baseball and had done whatever I could behind the scenes um, in the office, such as kept the baseball books while I was doing other things to really indicate that I wanted that job. So getting it was really incredible. And so the 1976 season, uh, once I had become a baseball beat reporter, I really spent my time understanding how you do the job. Because I was a reporter at Sports Illustrated, but that word meant something different. Usually reporter and researcher went together and your main job and my main job remained the entire time I was there to fact check stories that writers had written. And the idea that I was a reporter researcher on the beat, I didn't have to go to any games other than ones I was actually assigned to do a story or help a reporter like with Roger Kahn. But my view at the time was that I had this extraordinary opportunity now that I had been put on this beat. I had been given credentials that gave me access to every American and National League game that was played, you know, and to the press boss, etc. So for the year 1976, basically what I did is I spent all of my, you know, non-office hours during the season at baseball games so that I could learn how to report them. It wasn't something I was born knowing how to do. So that was kind of a year where I really 
just got to know it, just got over my anxiety every time I walked onto the field and realized I was the only woman there and the rest of them were men and tried to kind of fit myself into this environment, et cetera, et cetera. So by 1977, when the season starts, I feel like I've got one season under my belt. I'm a lot more ready to kind of begin to try to do what I was doing in other ways at the magazine, which was try to come up with story ideas of my own, even try to write them, which I would always have to do on my own time because my basic job was fact-checking and working with the other writers. But I looked at the 77 season as a real time to begin to take the skills that I had learned and the comfort that I now felt, relative comfort, and, um, and use those to try to, you know, kind of do more things within the magazine. And in fact, that worked. I ended up writing several baseball columns. I ended up writing the Baseball Week column that, that year for the first time. So I was gaining those skills. I was learning how to do those things. And so while I hadn't been assigned to the 1976 World Series as a part of the team, 1977 World Series would be the first time for me. And that was incredibly exciting. I mean, to be a reporter for Sports Illustrated at a World Series, I mean, that was like a capstone. It was so just, cool. I mean, it was amazing. So when I went to get my credential, my press credential for the World Series, I went to the hotel where the baseball writers were handing them out. And I went and I got mine. And on the subway ride up to the uh, Yankee Stadium, which I went to the day before the series start, which is when reporters go and just kind of began to kind of do lead up stories, et cetera. And I kind of went up there just to that lay of the land. And I read my credential and it said that I had access to the clubhouse on the credential. So um, I was kind of ready for that to happen. I felt like, yeah, okay. So the reason I felt like it was okay and that I felt like I was ready to make it happen and I have to go back a little bit. So it's a little complicated story because I'd spent so much time with the Yankees who were a really extraordinary team in 1977 and ended up in the World Series, but they were really a soap opera at the same time. <laughs> so because I was based in New York, because the Yankees were such a compelling story, I had been there a lot. And by mid-season, in private conversations I'd had with this young PR person who was his rookie season, he was my age, Mickey Morbido, and so he had sensibilities that were very different than the older, like Bill Crowley at Fenway Park. So Mickey and I would have many conversations. It wasn't in me in a combative way. I was trying to just get him to understand the challenges I was having without having the access to the clubhouse. So I wasn't barging through doors. I wasn't making scenes. I was trying to figure out within this institution, how could this happen? And Mickey had come to me after the all-star break and he had offered a partial solution. And I was very much a gradualist with this, you know, realizing that this was, I wanted to lay the pathwork so others could follow me in a way that would be possible and not combative. Cause I didn't think I'd win if it was combative. I mean, I was only one person. So what was I going to do? Right. But Mickey set up this deal where he said, listen, I'm going to go in to the clubhouse, which he always did afterwards to kind of see and help the media and stuff. He said, I'm going to go in through the front door and I'm going to ask you to come around to the side door, which was locked, but it was side door entrance to the clubhouse. 
He said, there's no guards there. I will come over. I'll let you in that side door into the passageway. And from there, you'll go right into Billy Martin's office, who was the manager. And we'll give you just that access. You can sit there for as long as you want. And that was really an opening because the reporters would come out from the locker room. There was another door that led into the locker room. The reporters would come through there and they'd come into Billy's office and they'd bring what they were reporting in the locker room into Billy to get his reaction. So in other words, it would be a way for me to get a real sense of what was going on in the locker room that night. What did Reggie say? What did Thurman Munson say? What did so-and-so say? And they bring it to Billy and then Billy would say something back. So the dynamics were very becoming very much more visible to me just by having that seat there. So that arrangement lasted through as we move toward the end of the 77 season, when the Yankees are still in contention, still fighting to go into the American League Championship playoffs. And, um, you know, interestingly, no one had written about me sitting in Billy Martin's office because, again, it was a gradual thing. And that's how I wanted it. I didn't want this to be a public, um, you know, kind of referendum on this. Um, and so, as I sat there, I got to the last week of the season, and to my surprise and delight, uh, Mickey left me two passes, one for each of the last two games that were full, what called daily clubhouse passes, with my Sports Illustrated written on it and my name and a, and a stamp on it, and all I had to show was that was to the guards and I could go right in. So Mickey left those for me knowing who I was as a gradualist, as someone who understood that this had to be something that was done with, you know, with uh, understanding about the tensions that might be there. So he was right. He'd given it to the right person because I used those passes, both of those games, but I only used them in the time before the game. When you had 45 minutes or so in a clubhouse where the, where the guys were pretty much relaxed, they'd come off of batting practice, they were hanging out. That was a time when all the male reporters had always been able to go in and do their reporting, but I'd also been kept out then. And none of the players were changing their uniforms or anything, but I was always prohibited from being there. So every game I went to, I lost 45 minutes of time to do reporting. So I took that time back. And I went in and I used that time to prepare for, you know, possible coverage that we would do of them in the series, et cetera, and just kind of make my way into this, this place. And so, again, no one wrote about it because they knew me. The players knew me by then. Um, I didn't try to go in after the game when there might have been that tension with players changing, et cetera. And I have to say that I knew my way around this locker room time because during the winter months, I covered the National Basketball Association. They already had opened their locker rooms with equal access for all reporters, as the National Hockey League had done. So it wasn't as though this was a complete new territory for me to be in. I'd been in NBA locker rooms after games. I understood this territory, I understood how to handle myself in it, etc. So in some ways, I was in a sense the right person to be trying to do this. 
So that's where we are when I come. And then the American League Championship Series happens, and I get the same thing. I get the clubhouse pass. I'm mainly in the Yankees locker room, but I'm in again before the games. Um, so we get to the World Series, and um, I have the pass. It says that I can go to the clubhouse. And here's what my mind is figuring. The Yankees are expecting me. They, 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 this is not going to be new for them. This is fine. You know, I don't, there's no problem there. But I also know that the Dodgers, who they're, they're playing against, the Dodgers have never had a woman who's covered their team. So this would be a whole new experience for them. So even though there's no obligation on my part, I have the pass. I can try to walk into the Dodgers locker room after the game and maybe create a scene because the Dodgers aren't going to be expecting me. Or I can do what I always felt was the best approach. I can go and talk to the Dodgers, tell them I have this pass, explain that it's been fine with the Yankees, and then let's see what happens. You know, let's get them prepared. I mean, because I don't want them to, if they feel like I'm invading, if they feel like they've been surprised by me, if they feel uncomfortable, they're not going to talk to me. Well, you know, it's to my advantage as well to make this work for everyone. So on that Monday, I approached Tommy Lasorda, who was the new manager of the Dodgers that year. And I met Tommy and Tommy knew me because I met him during the time that we were together with him on the Roger Kahn story that I had done the year before. So Tommy knew me and, you know, we had a certain level of trust. So I approached him. He really wanted nothing to do with this decision. He very much is one of the older traditionalists. And he handed me off to Tommy John, who was then the player rep for the team. He said, you ought to talk to Tommy. Tommy will figure it out because it's really about the players, et cetera. So Tommy John and I sat down in the dugout. We walked down the, in through the, the dugout together and we sat down maybe for about 15 minutes. We just talked. He looked at my past. He kind of assessed what I told him. <laughs> and he said, you know, he said, I, I get it. He said, you have every right to be there. You have every right to be there. You are a reporter. You were Sports Illustrated. You have the past. He said, but you know what? He said, I'd be really comfortable just in talking with the players before preparing them. I said, I get it. I said, I think that's right. But again, I didn't have to have the players permission. I had my pass. Right. But... <laughs> But I said, okay, go ahead. He said, what I'd like to do is take it to them. And he said, let's plan on you and I meeting right before the game one starts. And we'll meet at the backstop so no one else has to be part of this conversation. We'll meet toward the grandstand and we'll just privately discuss this and I'll let you know what the players decided. So a man of his word, he ends up showing up at exactly when he said he would. We're at the backstop, we're by ourselves private conversation. He says to me, he said, I took it to the guys. We talked about it. We do things by taking a vote. He said, we took a vote. It was not unanimous, but we do things by majority rule and the majority of players understand. They understand you have a job and that's fine. And so I thanked him. I said, I'm glad it worked out. And he said, you know, there are going to be a few guys who may give you some trouble. I said, I understand that. I've been through this before. We just, you know, basically have an understanding. I began to walk away. I thought, okay, we're clear. 
he calls me back. He says, hey, Melissa, come back for a sec. And he says, hey, would you do this favor for me? Again, I'm under no obligation to do it, but I said, okay. He said, would you go find Steve Brenner, who's our PR guy, and just give him a heads up. I haven't talked to him about this. I wanted to talk to you first. Give him a heads up that we've agreed, the players have voted, and you know it may be that you are gonna be coming into the thing. So I had never met Steve Brenner. But I said to Tommy, because I felt like we were in a relationship here on this issue, I said, yeah, I'll go find him. So I searched around underneath. I went to find Steve Brenner. I told him. And Steve, you know, heard my words. And as soon as I had finished, he basically turned and left and walked away rather rapidly. Sort of, he looked a little white, like a ghost or something. You know, he was, he was surprised. Let's put it that way. So later I learned, this is very much later, I learned that what happened is that he went and found Nikki Morabito. Nikki filled him in a little bit on, um, you know, what had happened during the season with me and with him and with the Yankees. The two of them went together to um, speak with um, Bob Weirs, who's the media director, who's sort of the lieutenant under the commissioner. And Bob Weirs is hearing nothing of this. He wants to hear nothing about how Mickey had worked with me. He wants to hear nothing about the Dodgers vote. He basically says, no, no woman is ever going in any locker room as long as this commissioner is running baseball, etc." And when that conversation culminated in him basically saying, this is the rule, they decide during game one, because this is when the conversation's happening, they decide during game one, they're going to call me up to the main press box and tell me this news. I'm in the auxiliary press box because our writer is in the main press box and I'm sitting down in the auxiliary one in the grandstand. So I hear my name over the little loudspeaker for our little area. And I go up to the press box. And what really strikes me as having been one of the cruelest things that Bob Weirs could do at that point was that he designated Mickey Morabito, who had done more to help me than any other human being in all of baseball. He designated Mickey to be the one to meet me at the back door of the, of the main press box and deliver the news that I was banned from going into any clubhouses forever. So Mickey has the job of having to tell me this and he barely, he couldn't look me in the eye. Yeah. What he was telling me, I felt so badly for him in the midst of feeling badly for myself that he had been put in the position of doing this. Cause I knew this wasn't his decision. Right. So as soon as he told me this, I basically said, I want to talk to the commissioner. And he sort of was startled. He said, I, I, that's not going to happen. That is not going to happen. <laughs> he said, but what I could do is maybe introduce you to um, Bob Weirs, who's the media director, who really is the one who sets the media policy. And he's sitting down next to me in the press box. So Mickey walks me down. There's like three big steps going down of the tiers where the writers are. He walks me down those steps, introduces me to Bob Weirs, and Bob Weirs, who I'd never met before, we shake hands, I start talking to him, and he looks like he's just going to explode. He wants me out of the press box because he doesn't want the writers hearing me 
And I think he thinks that because I'm a woman, again, the stereotypical, that I'm going to go into his, some hysterical crime fit or something in front of him. He doesn't want to have to handle it in front of the writers and have to explain to them what's going on. So he marches me back up those stairs into the back recesses of the um, press box where he then delivers the news. And the moment I say to him that, well, the Dodgers have given me permission, his line, which becomes a title of one of the chapters in my book, is uh, permission was never granted. <laughs> the only person who can grant you permission is the commissioner, and he will not. So that's now set the terms. So now we're at the moment where what you're asking about has happened. And I'm sorry it took me so long to kind no, of No, it's important. Point. But you have to kind of understand the, the steps that took place that it kind of ended up in the commissioner's lap and the response that they gave. Yeah. So that's where we are on Tuesday night of the World Series that's being played in New York, between New York and LA, the two biggest media capitals in the country. And so the press attention to this World Series is as high as probably a World Series has been in years, because it's also the first time the Dodgers, who used to play in Brooklyn, are coming back to New York as the Los Angeles Dodgers mm -hmm. to play the Yankees in the World Series. So this is a very hot spotlight on this series. And the last thing baseball wants, of course, is for my story to sort of dominate um, in this or to even have a, a moment in it. But they happened to be working with a person who had a self-interest that was similar. I never wanted this story to be played out in the public. I never wanted it to be a story in the base of the newspapers, you know, kind of fighting over this and the public weighing in. I just didn't think, thought it should be handled like the NHL and the NBA had, where there was no public awareness of what was happening in terms of how the stories were reported. You know, they just issued the fact that this would be equal access for the women reporters. So, um, but to, can I ask a question really quick? Yeah, of but course. Did you not want people? You've said it a couple times when you were telling the story how you didn't really want it to be public. Did you not want, or did you not think it was important for people to know? the restrictions that you were being held to, or you would just rather it be like under the wraps, like not a big deal, you, which oh, is I what you said. Think, I, didn't, I didn't look at it that way. Okay. I didn't think that it, um, it was something that should be argued in the public. I okay. thought it should be something that should be handled. That's always how I viewed it. And in fact, I viewed it so much that way that that was a Tuesday night. And um, you have to understand that for two years around baseball, I had handled all of this myself. Yeah. I had not had editors intervene. I had not had writers intervene. I didn't think that that was the best way to do it. First of all, if you were a woman working in the 1970s, and it could be the case still today, if you're the only one and you're trying to fit into a male-dominated culture, the minute that you start complaining about what you can't do, you will be considered someone who's whining and may not be able to really take on that job. So the job that the woman has to do is figure out all the workarounds that she has to do in order to do that job at about 150% of what the men do to kind of equalize the value. So no, I was not feeling as though this was something where I should be 
whining about it. I was trying to work in a very deliberate way under the radar to bring about a change that I felt was right to happen. Okay. So to, to that point, I did not mention this to anyone. Okay, I didn't go to the baseball writers and say, you won't believe what just happened to me. Mm. This did not become a story, okay? And I didn't even call my editor, my baseball editor. Wow. It, I went into the office when we had our office where days were Thursday through Monday because of sports. When I got there on Thursday, I hadn't even called my editor at home over that weekend that we had to even tell him what happened. Because again, I, you know, this was, this was per usual for me. This was not out of line with all the hurdles that I had been facing up until then. Right. And um, so, you know, one can look back at it and say, God, you were foolish. That was crazy. I mean, why wouldn't you have made this a story and, you know, kind of push baseball on this and that. I just didn't, it wasn't who I was. Right. So, was. so I know that the court case um, wasn't, it wasn't even your idea, correct? It was time's idea. So let's get into how, how long it was after the world series that the, that it all happened and, um, what your feelings were on it. And then I have some questions. I go in, I go in in Thursday morning and as I get into my office, the phone is ringing. Okay. We worked by phones then. We did not have (laughs) anything. Okay. You have to take yourself back. Hard to imagine. Yeah. (laughs) the phone we actually communicate by phone and my editor says come on down here I want to talk to you that's all he says and so I you know kind of move from my office and work the corridors and I get down and I get to his he says okay what happened up there at the stadium you know Tuesday night he said Jane called me I said Jane yeah he said Jane Gross called me he said oh okay and what did she have to say he said she doesn't know what's going on but she says there's something going on with you up there in terms of you know, something going on with the baseball and stuff. So fill me in. Jane Gross needs to be talked about at this in history. Jane Gross isn't just any figure. Jane Gross is the woman reporter who I knew very well as a friend because she'd been Sports Illustrated when I got there in 1974. She had then been covering the Professional Basketball League, and she had been one of the first women who was taken from Sports Illustrated and put onto a newspaper as the first woman to cover sports for that newspaper. She went to Newsday and she was put on the beat for the NBA. The reason the National Basketball Association had done its equal access, as it did just by edict of the commissioner at the time, was because Jane Gross was put in as a substitute reporter one night covering the New York Knicks Red Holtzman, who was the coach of the Knicks, knew Jane's father, who was a very well-known syndicated sports columnist for years, Mel Gross. His name was on delivery trucks. Jane had gone with him to all these games when she was young. Red came, sent his PR person over to Jane that night when he saw her in the press table and said, you have every right, just as any other reporter covering this, to be in our locker room after the game. And so Red basically said, you're there if you want to be there. And so that's how the NBA opened its locker rooms. So Jane Gross wasn't just anyone who happened to call my editor. She kind of sniffed out that something was going on and she wasn't quite sure what. Mm -hmm. 
So Pete Carey, who was the baseball editor, immediately says to me, he says, you have a job to do right now. He said, you need to go back and you need to sit down. You need to write me a memo. And that memo is going to be everything that happened to you from when you went up to that ballpark on Monday, through Monday night through the Tuesday thing where the commissioner tells you that you can't go in. And he said that memo is going to be in the form of a letter to Commissioner Kuhn. And it's going to be your documenting everything that happened from your perspective. We want a record of that. So I went back and just went to my little royal typewriter and typed that out in one fell swoop. I have still that, that, uh, that letter. It went, went for about single spaced, about a page and a half. And it was in fact couriered over to the commissioner that day. So that was, and then, and then it later became evidence in my hearing. So that was really the beginning to answer your question of when we move toward what would eventually be a federal lawsuit. You're right. I wasn't the one who came up with the idea of a federal lawsuit. Um, what happened at first were there were negotiations between the legal staff at Time Inc., my editor, Peter Carey, and the commissioner and his lawyers. So those negotiations began even as the World Series was still taking place. So that by game six, they had some arrangement where they'd give me a male escort. That male escort would have the job of going into the locker room, bringing out players. I was told about it, this arrangement, because I wasn't part of any of these conversations. I was just told that this had been agreed to by all the men in the room. Um, before game six, I said that I would only do it, that I would do it under protest. I did say to Bob Weir's that night that I was going to go along with it, but only other protest. I wrote that in my contemporaneous memo because I said this will not work and this does not constitute equal access. But anyway, that's how it worked for game six. It didn't work at all. It was a miserable failure, etc. So then we leave the baseball season and we're moving into winter. I'm moving into my reporting on the NBA. All these negotiations are continuing. To make a long story short, by November, they are calling in their outside counsel, which they use if they're going to actually do a case in court. This is the way the timing structure was. That was a white shoe law firm called Cravath, Swain and Moore. And the attorney that was assigned to Time Inc. at that point, which mainly was to argue what would be First Amendment cases, because that's what usually we were arguing. In this case, it was going to be a 14th Amendment case with a bit of the First Amendment, but really hardcore 14th Amendment. And the attorney that was assigned the case, yes, his name was for short F.A.O. Schwartz hmm. Jr. And yes, his great-great-great-grandfather founded F.A.O. Schwartz the Toy Store. He happened to be an astonishingly amazing attorney. Um, and uh, he became the attorney on the case when they were exploring it in late November, they mentioned to me sometime in December, I believe right after Thanksgiving, that they were considering moving this to a federal case, that the reason they were doing it was this, this, and this. They had an outside attorney that would handle the case if we went ahead, and would I put my name on it as the plaintiff? And at that point, I said yes. And that was really my first engagement with what had really been conversations that had pretty much excluded me from them. They were pretty much taking place at the lawyer level, the editor level, etc. But um, it was on December 30th when the case was filed in the Southern District Court of Manhattan with my name as the plaintiff. 
that I actually became very involved, to say the least. So just for the sake of time, um, why don't we or you um, kind of just say what the outcome of the case was, and then I can ask you a couple questions, and then we can... The reason that we're talking today is because the outcome was right. that our judge, Constance Baker Motley, uh, or made an order at the end of our hearing. The reason we didn't have a trial is because we basically agreed on the fundamental facts. There wasn't a disagreement on facts. The basic argument was whether, in fact, this judge would rule or find that baseball had discriminated against me based on gender in his treatment of me. And that's where we get into the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. So at the end of this hearing, and a number of things that happen after that with more papers filed, etc., she writes her decision, which is an order on September 25th of 1978. The hearing had been in April, so we're now, what is it, five, six months later. She writes her decision And we are just at that point also in the last week of the baseball season. We're moving into the uh, league championships in the World Series in 1978, in which the Yankees and the Dodgers are once again (laughs) playing each other. So it almost felt like a full circle. Full circle, yeah. But she orders baseball. And this is really something I want to underline before we go to your questions, and then I will be quiet. A federal judge has no ability to tell Louis Kuhn as the commissioner of baseball how he will do his media availabilities for his players. That's out of her bailiwick. Mm. So this was never a case about whether I could go into the locker room or not. What the case was is, will she order baseball to make their media policy one in which prescribes equal access across gender lines, right? So if baseball wanted to keep all reporters out of the locker room as a way to achieve equality, that's fine with her. She doesn't care. She can't rule on that. That is not in her bailiwick. The only thing she can say is, from now on, baseball, you must, have a policy, a media policy for interviews that is equal for all reporters. Got it. And that is something that was never understood by the media in covering this. It was always portrayed as a case about whether this judge, this woman judge, would let another woman go into a locker room because that's how they wanted to portray it because they wanted to portray there would be a woman barging into a place she didn't belong to leer at naked men. That was the media story. That was the narrative. The case was never about that. It was about equal access. So that's been the most misunderstood part of this whole thing. And that misunderstanding continues to this day. Because when people talk about this case, they say, oh, yeah, that's the one about her going into the locker room. Right? Right. So, yeah. So I want your listeners to understand, because they're very smart listeners, I want them to understand that this was never a case, really, about me going into a locker room. Yeah. That wasn't it. It was about equal access. It was a case about equality. Okay. So I'm going to shut up and you can take us home. Take us home. Um, 
All right, so you have a Facebook group um, where you post a lot of articles and I'm in it and it's really it's really interesting, but you posted something the other day and something you wrote along with it said, quote, trust me when I say this, the emotional toll can be the toughest part of doing this job when you are a woman covering sports. And you mentioned early on, earlier on in the interview that you had some that you definitely felt some sort of anxiety when you were going into the stadium and seeing that you were kind of the only woman. And I was just wondering what kind of impact that emotional toll had on you and what, um, if, if it has lingered on to this day. Okay. It's a good question. I was referring at that point to, um, an incident that's happened recently. Talk about the past being the present. Um, the GM, GM, the then GM, um, general manager for the Mets was fired right. about a week and a half ago and fired because of very extremely inappropriate lewd texts that were sent to a base, a reporter, uh, who was from a foreign country who was coming over here to try to cover uh, major league baseball. And the text that he sent, this happened two years ago. She just really surfaced it now and he was fired over these, were just, I don't even want to go into it. Yeah, let's not. Imaginations for it. But when I wrote that on my, what I call my uh, Locker Room Talk Facebook page, uh, which, by the way, you can get to by just my name, Melissa Ludke Memoir, under Facebook, um, where I do post about things that are happening with women and girls in sports, but also in the larger picture of life, because I think I want to put these experiences into the broader context in which they belong. But in that case, I did mention this because partly there are two reasons. One is the easier one I'll talk about now for me is to just have followed the emotional toll through Twitter and through various videos that have been done by women who are covering sports today. Right. You just have to go and look at the video that Julie DeCaro and Sarah Spain did in which uh, they have men who read texts back to them that have been sent to them, in which they, uh, these texts, uh, the writers in social media, mainly anonymously, uh, uh, speak of vile things said about them. And the, the impetus for this is simply some opinion that they've rendered about sports. So there's an extreme emotional toll. And I think that emotional toll is as much responsible for the fact that a lot of women end up dropping out of covering sports because this toll is taken because there's no way that you can cover sports today without being on Twitter, being on various social media platforms and being encountering these kind of things on a fairly daily basis. And they, t- they do take their toll. And in this particular story that ESPN did about the uh, firing of the GM manager, they mentioned that the emotional toll on her was so huge that she ended up going back to her country and leaving sports writing and leaving journalism because of the toll it took. So in part, my message was reflecting on what I'm seeing out there today. Um, Another part of it is that I have to say that there was an emotional toll that I paid for being the person who was at that time you know, characterized in all sorts of ways. Again, this notion that the only reason I wanted to file this suit is because I had some great inner desire to see naked men, you know, that I would be leering, that I was some kind of vixen, that I was all these characterizations. 
Now these, in retrospect, are extraordinarily tame compared to what's said today. And they're tame because anyone who uttered them, either in voice or in print, had to have their name attached. And that was a civilizing factor. But for me, at the age of 26, this all came as a great um, learning experience for me yeah. and it had an emotional toll. For me to be represented in a way that didn't feel like who I was at all. And yet I had no vehicle, I had no Twitter, I had no Facebook, I had no social media platform on which to be able to respond to it. Nor did I even feel empowered at that point as a woman to be able to respond. Now, I did write a few op-eds along the way, and I did get a chance to do some interviews, but um, that was really the extent of it. So my own feeling of lack of empowerment to respond to it meant that I internalized a lot of it. Hmm. And so I'd be the first to say that, yes, it played an emotion, had an emotional toll on me. Because to be portrayed as someone that you know you aren't and not have the capacity to be able to, to respond in equal measure to what you're constantly, constantly hearing just wears you. It wears on you. It wears you down. So it was from both of those perspectives that I, that I said that in my, um, yes, in my comments. And, and yes, I treat my Facebook community in many ways as a platform that's similar to a blog where I will put myself in the midst of a story that I'm sharing so that they understand that there's a personal connection that comes from that. So, yes. And you mentioned a couple things in your answer that kind of tie in perfectly with my next question. So you mentioned how that woman, that reporter eventually went back to her country, dropped sports reporting and just kind of moved on. Um, and you also mentioned the word empowered. So, was there ever a time where you thought that you were just going to stop reporting and left or were you, were you ever discouraged or were you always empowered to kind of like stick it through? Well, I'm saying back then I didn't feel empowered to be, right. um, to respond. I mean, I did, and again, I want to emphasize, I did, was invited to do speeches and the rest. So I did have that access to platforms, but it was nothing compared to the kind of daily, daily slog through these columns and, and articles that were really centrally focused on um, nakedness and, and lewd women and lyrics. So that that did take its toll. But um, I didn't leave sports writing about a year later. I didn't stay in sports writing. And I think to some degree, it was the experience that made me want to push on and made me want to create a, a, a sense of my different identity, taking the skill sets that I had found in sports report and applying them more broadly to news. I'd always um, had Walter Cronkite as a bit of a hero of mine and watched him over dinners. We had the CBS News on in our home during dinner and we would talk about the news. And when I came to New York, even before I got the job at Sports Illustrated, I had always magically thought that maybe I could come out as an art history major and get a job at CBS <laughs> News. Well, that didn't happen. Um, but now that I had this kind of background to it, I thought, well, maybe I could now. And so I actually got a job at CBS News. And, um, and to answer your question, I, I, I think I arrived there with a, with a sense of empowerment over what I had accomplished with the federal suit. Not, not an arrogance, I hope, but a sense of empowerment that I wasn't any longer going to sit back and basically just take 
what what was there. You know, I was going to always try to push as gracefully as I could the boundaries. And so I'd gotten to CBS, and it didn't take me more than three weeks to look around and discover that um, there were a lot of women sitting in cubicles that were called researchers at CBS, and then there were a lot of young men that I judged to be my own age and discovered in three weeks of talking to them, they had about the same experience I did, who were sitting in an outer rim of assistant producers. Mm -hmm. So perhaps feeling empowered at that point, I did go to the vice president of CBS News at the time, a guy named John Lane, sat across his desk and basically said, I feel like I should have been hired as an assistant producer. I don't understand why I am sitting as a researcher and that's what I would like to be. And he basically said, no, you won't be. Um, and, and I left. I left CBS News after being there for only three months because that wasn't, I wasn't going to take it any longer yeah. in a certain way. So I did, I think, grow to understand that I could be empowered. And what I love about watching the women sports writers today is that they are so, so good at responding back to these tweets. Mm -hmm. They don't get caught up in it. They're very smart about how they answer it. And they basically have learned the tools and the skills to kind of shut it down as best they can. So that I see as their empowerment, which I didn't feel I had back then. And I admire them enormously, but I also recognize the toll it takes. Yeah, I mean, Twitter is a wonderful place. I, I get lost in Twitter for hours. It's just, it's a, it's a black hole. But um, is it weird for you to think that had this not happened to you, that um, MLB might not have granted that equal access for who knows how many years? Oh, I think it would have happened. It would have, someone else would have come along. By the next year, um, by the... Year 78, I believe, when we were in the hearing and the rest, uh, the Toronto Star had hired a wonderful woman who I came to know, um, um, Allison, um, ooh, what's her last name? I wish I could remember, but Allison, who was great. She has, she's died at this point. She died at a somewhat early age, but she was fantastic, and she was the beat writer for the Toronto Blue Jays. So it would have happened. And this would have happened because it was starting to happen. Soon, you know, a couple of years later, comes along Claire Smith, who was phenomenal with the Hartford Current, and she okay. was covering the Yankees. And then she comes to the New York Times. And in fact, she's the first woman ever put into the Hall of Fame, inducted into the Hall of Fame as a writer. So it, the trail was, was being blazed. It was happening. The reason that baseball was so late is because when women would start at newspapers, I was in a magazine, very different, but when you started a newspaper, you would usually be assigned to the NHL or the NBA, and that's because those sports in those days were considered the minor sports. So when you came in, you would be assigned to the minor sports, and the baseball beat was considered the pinnacle. So that's what you worked your way up to for all those, for that time during the 70s. So it wasn't, it would be very unusual for a woman at that time to have worked her way up enough in the sports department to end up being given the baseball beat because that was one that a reporter a male reporter didn't give up easily well once they had it they held on to it for years sometimes decades hmm. i guess i have one last question and then i'll let you go um but it's obvious that there's still a ton of 
inequality in the sports industry. So I guess I'm wondering what is one thing that you wish to hopefully see changed in the next decade or so? Okay, well, I'd start by saying that one thing is already on the way to changing, and that was something that um, my great, great friend Robin Herman, who was the very first uh, sports reporter, uh, was given access to a locker room in the NHL. She was the one who I really say is the first in this, um, you know, this topic and this subject, and that was in uh, 1975. Robin Herman was interviewed as I was for an ESPN film that was called Let Them Wear Towels. And Robin, in the end of that film, when they asked her about the future, and this was now done six, seven, eight years ago, and um, Robin said at the time, you know, we may have achieved a lot in terms of the issue, but we still don't see women in sports broadcast booths. We see them along the sidelines. Yep. Well, whether it was the magic of Robin saying it in that or whatever, we have started to see in every one of the major sports, women moving into the sports broadcast booths. Yay. That major that we have the voice of a woman as a person doing the commentary and sometimes the play-by-play and, you know, of, of, of sports on major, major broadcast networks. Um, I don't have to go through all their names, but one of my great, great friends, Susan Waldman, um, has been doing the Yankees radio color commentary for 13 years. Cool. I mean, you know, so this is really starting. So Robin pointed that out to me and said it in a way that it really put it on my radar screen. So I think of her every time I see that happening. And I'm glad to say that as I look at stories, looking, for example, in minor league baseball, you see a lot of women in the pipeline. They're coming up. You know, so I think that, you know, because so many people, um, you know, so many newspapers have gone, you know, the way of dinosaurs and where a lot of this is online now and the rest, that I do see the broadcast medium and the voice of women being very important. But at the same time, one of the things that I would like to see that isn't exactly about sports media, but I think relates to it, is I'd like to see sports media giving women's sports a whole lot more attention than they do. Yep. Because um, this, you know, you've got the incredible WNBA. You've got the two women's hockey leagues, professional hockey leagues. Must I remind anyone of the amazing soccer team (laughs) that, that the United States has? You know, where the women have been the champions, the men's soccer barely, you know, makes the uh, quarterfinals, you know, the U.S. men's soccer. So, you know, I think that that is where I would like to see um, things really taking off. And I think that they can. You know, we're starting for the first time to see women's soccer on ABC is doing it. Uh, We're starting to see ESPN pick up more of the women's sports. But when you look at the amount in terms of broadcast time that women's sports gets, it's still under 10%. I mean, it used to be like 2%. Yeah, I I saw, I think um, there was some statistic from a Neiman report or or it originated somewhere else, but it said that 4% of sports media coverage uh, goes to, either goes to a woman or, I don't know, I think I'm going to botch it. So 
Never mind. You're but right, right, you're right around it. I mean, that's the dismal, right. that's the dismal truth. Moral of the story is, is it's not enough. And yeah. yeah. So that's broadcast. And it's also, you know, in the online sites, et cetera. I mean, you go to these online sites that are, you know, quote unquote, covering sports. You have to look around for a long time. Yeah. You know, to find, um, find coverage about women. And that's one reason why I set up my Facebook platform. Um, because that's a community now for people who want to see what's happening in women's sports, but more. I mean, it puts it into a broader context. I do the work for people. I put up five or six, as you know, five or six stories a day. Yeah. A lot of them are about women in sports. They could be about women's tennis. They might be about women's golf. They might be about women's hockey. They might be about the WNBA, which has gotten a lot of attention this year, rightly so. Um, yeah, so, I'm happy uh, I joined. And if you guys listening want to join, just look up Melissa Ludke Memoir on Facebook. Um, and I, I think that it would be a great group for you guys to join just because like Melissa just said, you'll get a bunch of articles every day about things that probably won't be on your main news feed, um, but are equally as important. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, just one word, Melissa Ludke Memoir. Perfect. So it doesn't even have an apostrophe S. So it's just Melissa Ludke memoir. You've got to learn how to spell my name, but you know, you can look that they'll up. They'll see. They'll see yeah. on the title. Um, well, this has been absolutely amazing. It's an honor to get to speak to you. And um, I hope that everyone enjoys your story as much as I do. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me on a Saturday. Well, thanks for thinking of me, and I'll look forward to hearing what the podcast is about once you've done your magic to it. (laughs) Perfect. All right, Melissa, thank you so much, and for everything that you've done and continue to do, and um, I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of Happiness Talks. It was, I I can't say this enough, but I am so happy and grateful and honored and lucky to have had Melissa come and speak to us today and share her story. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. I hope you learned from it. I hope you maybe even got inspired from it. And um, I'm just so thrilled and happy that this happened. Um, And if you guys are enjoying the Happiness Talks podcast or specifically this episode, it would be super duper helpful if you could go to the Apple podcast app and give um, Happiness Talks a rating, a review, a subscription, share it. Any of that helps people discover the podcast and it would mean a lot to me. Um, But thank you guys again. I hope you guys have a lovely day and remember to smile. It's good for you.